0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Introducing my brother, I will take a different approach than I do with most of my introductions, which I usually read. I don't think I need to read my own brother's introduction. You all know he's, he's completing his doctorate in Sacred Scripture at Catholic University of America. He's finished his Master's in Theology. He knows well the biblical languages of Hebrew, Syriac, Greek, and so forth. But more importantly, as I was thinking what I might say about my brother, it's something I feel very strongly about. But more importantly, the witness they give of the faith that they have and my brother is another one of those uh, the long list of speakers that we've invited to the Institute. Whenever I was ha- struggling in my life as a young man finding my way back to Christ, he was always there as a beacon telling me again and again, follow Christ and it will always be okay. And so with that, I welcome back Sebastian Karnazza, my brother.
2: Okay, our topic tonight is the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I thought we'd begin with some definition of terms. Since the term Dead Sea Scrolls appears in the popular media in a number of contexts and with apparently different senses, it is important to begin with a definition of terms. The broad sense. The scrolls and fragmentary documents found at up to nine different locations in the Judean desert to the west of the Jordan River. This sometimes also includes the findings in the Ezra Synagogue in Old Cairo in Egypt at the latter part of the 19th century. Also, the findings of writing materials at Masada. The narrow sense of the Dead Sea Scrolls and fragmentary documents found in the 11 Qumran caves on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. We are speaking tonight about the Dead Sea Scrolls in this latter, narrow sense. A few more definitions. As you may be wondering, what is Qumran and what relation do the Dead Sea Scrolls have to it? Qumran is the modern Arabic name for the area in which the scrolls containing caves were discovered. Near the caves is the Wadi Qumran. Wadi is the Arabic word for torrent bed or ravine. Also, near the caves are the archaeological ruins of a nearby building called Hirbet Qumran. Hirbet is Arabic for stone ruin. When the first scrolls were discovered in 1947, a subsequent archaeological investigation of the nearby ruins began, under the suspicion that there might be some relationship between the ruins and the scrolls in the caves. You can see the Qumran, the building site there. Cave 4, an important cave. Probably next in importance only to Cave 1. And also of great importance in the ancient world, build a train site. (laughs) The archaeological investigation revealed the remnants of an aqueduct that brought water from the nearby Wadi Qumran, a building with many rooms, a cemetery, And farming plots in the vicinity. Now, before we get any further along, a few words about my sources for the lecture tonight. Most of what you will be hearing is a summary of the work of Joseph A. Fitzmaier, who is considered by many to be the world's living expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls. I had the privilege of taking a course. On the Dead Sea Scrolls from Father Fitzmaier while at Catholic University before his retirement. And the end of the lecture tonight, I will give you the bibliographic information for his more influential works on the subject and my reasons for recommending them first for your further investigation into the topic. So while I might be giving you a number of dates and names and things like that, and scroll number one and cave number two, and all those things can be found in the books that I'll show you at the end as well. Now to the main subject of tonight's lecture. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes, and Christian Origins. It has now been over 60 years since the initial discovery of the first scrolls in 1947, a discovery that has shed much light on different areas of historical research. The historical significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls can be summarized in three major categories. The Dead Sea Scrolls have supplied first-hand knowledge about the forms of Hebrew Aramaic, and Greek that Jews spoke and wrote in the period of the 1st century BC through the 1st century AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls also testified to the shape of the text of the Old Testament that the Jews were reading in this period. They also shed new light on the diverse forms of Judaism and Palestine in this period. And as a result, discoveries provided much information about the religious and political matrix of 1st century Palestine, The time and place in which Jesus was born. Thus this topic tonight is not only of general interest for Christians, but also timely as all of us gathered here today prepare for the coming feast of the Nativity of our Lord. What is the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls for New Testament studies? The Qumran texts supply us with first-hand information about the Palestinian-Jewish matrix out of which early Christianity and its most important canonical writings emerged. Remember that the Gospels and Acts of the Apostles describe the life and ministry of Jesus and the early stages of the first century church in Jerusalem and Palestine and the interaction with Palestinian Judaism. Let's look at a few quick examples of what exactly we're talking about here. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Who are the Pharisees? Why are they arguing with Jesus? Who are the elders? And what tradition are they referring to? It's obviously considered authoritative as they're quoting it to Jesus and expecting him to know about it. Jesus answered them, and why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So, Pharisees, you might think, well, they just happen to be there. Well, Jesus said and did many things in his three-year ministry. The gospel writers have told us the essentials. Matthew, therefore, assumes that you, his audience, knows who the Pharisees are and why they're important in this dialogue. It's also critical as you continue reading the text to know who the Pharisees are to understand just why they're having this very dialogue about washing hands. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 23, you can see another example of this. 20, I'm sorry, 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Matthew chapter 22. Then Pharisees went and took counsel how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? Well, we know about Herod. Who are the Herodians? How are they related to Herod? And why are the Pharisees and the Herodians working together right now? Matthew assumes that you know the irony of the situation. But you couldn't understand that unless you knew who the Pharisees were, who the Herodians were, Who was Herod? How did he get on the throne? What's the political and religious makeup of this situation? Matthew, again, is including these details, critical, in his view, for you to understand what he's saying. You might think, well, okay, that was in the time of the Gospels when Jesus was in his ministry, but he died, he rose from the dead, and we have the church now, and those things are all in the past. Flip over to Acts chapter 4. John and Peter are imprisoned. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Notice the wording there. They're not upset that they're talking about Jesus. The Sadducees are upset that they're teaching the resurrection of the dead. Heresy, according to Sadducees. Heresy. This is one of the things that divided the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Again, Luke is giving us essential details for understanding the book of Acts. But oftentimes we hear these words, Sadducees and Pharisees, and we kind of just roll over them. And in the end, we're at a loss for understanding the text. Now, you might think, well, okay, Jesus was dealing with them in his ministry. And sure, early on, the Pharisees and Sadducees are giving John and Peter a hard time. But that was the time of the Jews, and we are the church. Flip over to Matthew chapter 15. The first council of the church. Pretty important. I'm sorry, Acts. Did I say something? Acts chapter 15. Sorry about that. Acts chapter 15, verse 4. When they, that is Paul and Barnabas, came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, but some believers, that is Christians, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. Pharisees in the church? How'd that happen? Creep in the back door? What's going on? Surely there weren't enough of them to make a difference, right? They're having a council because the Pharisees dominated the population in the early church at this stage. Pharisees. Why would they convert? The Pharisees converted in droves. The Pharisees believed in the possibility of a resurrection, and the Pharisees were the ones who knew the law best. Also, the prophets. And so, when the apostles began to preach, the Pharisees converted. In such large numbers that we have the first council debating the issue. It is necessary to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. Again, you might think, well, okay, but the council solved that problem for us, right? And eventually the Pharisees surely would have faded away at this point. Flip over to the end of Acts the Apostles. You might find an interesting identification among the Pharisees. Chapter 23 of Acts tells us about Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. He's on trial. He's about to be sent to Rome for his first captivity. And as he's put before the council, he looks at the crowd, verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees. With respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. Paul, a Pharisee? How could he say that? Well, if you understand who the Pharisees are, it makes a lot of sense that Paul would say that. Again, Acts the Apostles, written by Luke, Matthew's Gospel, these details are important for us, and the authors of Acts and Matthew and the rest of the New Testament included these details for you to understand these passages and assumed you would understand them. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, how might one investigate these questions further? Who were the Pharisees? Who was the Sadducee? What's this deal about resurrection why are they arguing? Where do they come from? The amount of first-hand information about Palestinian Judaism with which Jesus and the apostles interacted was very limited outside of the New Testament before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were sparse inscriptions in Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew, very sparse. There were writings of the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who lived during the time of what we call the New Testament period, who composed a number of works roughly around the same time as the composition of the New Testament. But Josephus is a historian, and he has a certain religious bent, And so he does not include every little detail that we may need to decipher who the Sadducees are and the Pharisees and what's going on. The writings of Philo of Alexandria, who composed a number of works roughly around the same time when Jesus lived on earth, had also been helpful to a certain extent, but the influence of Alexandrian Hellenism in his writings and the allegorical nature of much of his works make them significantly less valuable for historical questions about Palestinian Judaism, in the first century if an answer to a particular question could not be found in one of these resources New Testament scholars often turned to the rabbinic literature for insights the problem is that most of the rabbinic literature cannot be dated any earlier than around AD 200 and so is of questionable value for such issues thus given the situation of meager information about first century Palestinian Judaism immediately prior to and contemporary with the life of Jesus it is obvious how significant a discovery the Dead Sea Scrolls is, which date from the end of the 3rd century BC to the middle of the 1st century AD. Such a period of composition gives these documents a significant status among the resources already mentioned for our study of Palestinian Judaism in the 1st century and therefore New Testament studies. But all of the Dead Sea Scrolls are not of equal value for this research. The Dead Sea Scrolls may be divided into three major categories. There are biblical texts, which are copies of the books of the Old Testament, although these are precious documents for biblical studies in general, and specifically text-critical study of the Old Testament. They bear only indirectly on the study of the New Testament. For example, when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage. We'll see an example of this, and this is regarding the shape of the Old Testament text. There are also sectarian texts. Which are Hebrew documents that were composed by members of the Qumran community and destined for use by them. These include the famous Manual of Discipline, or also known as the Rule of the Community, the Damascus Document, or Damascus Scroll, the Thanksgiving Psalms, the War Scroll, etc. There is also intertestamental literature, that is, late Jewish literature that appears neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. You've heard of some of these books Enoch. Jubilees, also there appear Semitic forerunners of the Greek, Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, and other books. And some previously unknown works, there were other works that were unknown prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So here you can see an example of the Isaiah Scroll. So this would be an example of what we were talking about of biblical texts. Here is the oldest text we have of the book of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls up until this point the oldest Hebrew text of the book of Isaiah would have been from about the 8th century AD very important text however most of the texts of Qumran are in fragmentary form and this is one of the better ones a lot of the fragments that you've heard about this fragment or that fragment from cave whatever looks more like just this piece here okay And so they have to use infrared and various things to try to decipher the information with a magnifying glass. Here's one scholar working on, again, this is the famous Isaiah scroll. So now you can see the approximate size here. About the size of a typical page in in its um, height, but then unrolled, of course, across the full table and also, as you would imagine, you would need a magnifying glass to decipher some of the spots especially where there's been some deterioration. Notice the difference of this scroll and those fragments. Why is that? Well, the jars. Cave 1 is a special cave because in Cave 1, also in Cave 3 there were some jars, in Cave 1 the scrolls were rolled up very carefully in linen cloth, and then placed in these specially made jars with a lid. These jars were also found, interestingly enough, at the Qumran site, just below the caves. Suggesting, of course, the theory of the relationship between the site and the caves and the scrolls. Amazing invention, keeping a scroll for 2,000 years for us to discover today. Here's an example of the approximate size you can see to a human being. So which category do you think is the most important? What gets exciting? What do you think? I heard, What did I hear? The biblical. Why? Obviously, these are biblical texts. of the word of God. Very important, right? The Old Testament texts are important, but remember we already have the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament texts are important, and we're going to see, as we talked about the shape of the Old Testament text at the time... But in the end, it's the sectarian texts and the third category, the intertestamental literature, that has proved to be the most valuable among the Dead Sea Scrolls for New Testament research. Remember, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we knew of the Pharisees and the Sadducees from the New Testament and Josephus and some other writers. We also knew of the Essenes from Josephus and other writers. But the Essenes are not mentioned in the New Testament. What is the community behind the Dead Sea Scrolls? Were they Essenes? I don't know. Many have suggested this. This is the theory of Joseph Fitzmaier. Again, as I mentioned to you, the, one of the, if not the world's expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls. But he also contemplates the possibility that this is, uh, could, they could have been another group. So we'll see. What is an example of the significance of the Old Testament texts among the Dead Sea Scrolls for New Testament studies? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, verse 14. This is Stephen, the first martyr of the church, early in his defense, says this. And Joseph sent and called to him Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons or souls. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died himself and our fathers. And he goes on telling the story, the rest of the story of the patriarchs from there. 75. And... That's what all of the Greek manuscripts, the most reliable ones we have, on Acts chapter 7, verse 14 says as well. Epastelos de Yosef, metakaleseto Yaakov, ton patera abtu. Okay, pasan and all teinsungeneon and his relatives, and sukes persons, numbering, kanta pente. Seventy-five. This is what the Greek text of the Old Testament says as well. Genesis chapter 46, verse 27. In the Greek text, the Septuagint, 75. No surprise. The problem is that the medieval Masoretic text, the Hebrew text we had of Genesis, up until the Dead Sea Scrolls, said, U'benei Yosef and the sons of Joseph, Asher Yulad, who were born low to him, but Mitzrayim in Egypt, Nefesh Shanaim were two. Next line. Ko Hanefesh, all the persons or souls, Lebet Yaakov, the house of Jacob, Hava'ah, who went, Mitzrayimah, to Egypt, were Shiva'im. Seventy. If you turn in Genesis, in most English Bibles, to Genesis chapter forty-six, verse twenty-seven, based upon that Hebrew Masoretic text, it says seventy. Why is that? What's going on? Any ideas? Has the Septuagint miscounted? Is the Hebrew text a corruption? What's happening? Mm-hmm. There, are, there are different ways of counting, for sure. Some were, some relatives were not included in the
0: seventy we're included in the 75.
2: Yes, and this is definitely the case with some of these number differences. And sometimes you have just approximations as well. 70, 75, pretty close. But the question has always been pondered, is there something behind this? Acts and the Septuagint both have 75. St. Jerome in his, he, in his Latin text follows the Hebrew text. As you know, he was in Bethlehem doing his work on Genesis and he has 70 in the Vulgate two texts from cave 4 of Qumran now give evidence of a Hebrew text of Genesis which read 75 which one's correct well these things can be debated but what it does tell us is that there's a Hebrew text behind the Septuagint that is different than the Masoretic text Okay, So there are different manuscript families of the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint is following one of those manuscript families. The, man, the Masoretic text is following another manuscript family. This has put an end to a uh, debate of which one is to be preferred. The Septuagint says this, the Masoretic text says that, which one's right? Well, they're both translating from a Hebrew tradition and the Septuagint cannot be ignored as simply a corruption of the tradition now where it varies from the Masoretic text because we now know there's a Hebrew text behind the Septuagint which is different from the Masoretic text. Very important for biblical studies especially Old Testament. So what are some examples of the significance of the sectarian and intertestamental literature? Those are the second and third categories that we talked about this is a more complicated question and so we'll examine this in three parts one is in relation to John the Baptist is there any relationship between John the Baptist and the Dead Sea Scrolls we'll also look at the relationship of the Dead Sea Scrolls to the life and words of Jesus and then third we'll look at the relationship of the Dead Sea Scrolls to the rest of the New Testament. The clearest and most detailed picture of John the Baptist is that found in the New Testament. If you turn with me to uh, to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But They had no child Because Elizabeth was barren And both were advanced in years Now while he was serving as priest before God When his division was on duty According to the custom of the priesthood It fell to him by lot To enter the temple of the Lord And burn incense And the whole multitude of the people Were praying outside at the hour of incense And there appeared to him an angel The Lord standing on the right side Of the altar of incense And Zechariah said how cute. <laughs> We've seen angels, right? They're usually slightly overweight babies. Sometimes they're missing their bodies with wings. And Those are nice pictures, but they're not the biblical image of the angels. When angels appear in the Bible, people usually die. Okay, So Zechariah is naturally afraid. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he shall drink no wine nor strong drink Have a Nazarite vow and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The birth of Zechariah appears in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to be delivered, and she gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and kinsfolk heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. We then hear about John's birth and his naming. And then we hear the song of Zechariah in verse 67. Look at verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness till the day of his manifestation to Israel. What happened between the birth of John and his naming and his appearance in the wilderness Baptizing. Well, we don't have a lot of information, but the next time we see him, he's an adult man. Chapter 3 tells us about that episode in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. Verse 2 In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region about the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight. The rough ways shall be made smooth, all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the multitude that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Not very ecumenical. (laughs) Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befit repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation of all men questioning their hearts concerning John, whether or perhaps he were the Christ. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The thong of oh, his sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. If we turn to Matthew's gospel, we see the same picture. We also hear that same quote from Isaiah. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. In fact, Mark's gospel begins with this. Mark is different than Matthew and Luke in that there is no infancy narrative, but he just begins simply with the story of John the Baptist, showing you his significance and his role in the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's a combination of Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter three, verse one. Take a look at John's gospel. Chapter one, verse 19. Now don't confuse John the evangelist here with John the Baptist. John the evangelist, John chapter 1, verse 19, speaking about John the Baptist, says this, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, No. They said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Later in the Gospels, we hear about the death of John at the hand of Herod the Tetrarch. You know the story well, his beheading. That's the story of John the Baptist in the New Testament. We also hear about John the Baptist in the writings of Josephus. Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and was a very just, just punishment for what he did against John called the Baptist. For Herod had killed him, although he was a good man and had urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue. Both as to justice toward one another and reverence towards God and having done so joined together in washing. For immersion in water it was clear to him could not be used for the forgiveness of sins but as a sanctification of the body and only if the soul was already thoroughly purified by right actions. And he goes on to talk about John being imprisoned by Herod and eventually killed. Same story that we heard, no in less detail, in the New Testament about John. Since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there has been a growing mass of literature regarding the possibility of some relationship of John the Baptist to the community behind the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, the sheer mass of this body of literature has led to a popular belief that it is now an established fact that John the Baptist was an Essene and even a member of the community behind the Dead Sea Scrolls. But this is certainly not a scientifically established fact. First of all, we should begin by noting that there is not a single clear reference to John the Baptist in any of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But this does not in and of itself exclude the possibility that John the Baptist had some contact, if not even was a member of the community at some point before his ministry. According to the Gospel of Luke, remember John was born to elderly parents, but what happened to him after his birth and leading up to his ministry of baptism in the Jordan is a bit of a mystery. We hear that He lived in the desert until he was manifest to Israel, Luke chapter 1, verse 80. We already read this. And that the message came from God to John while he was in the desert, chapter 3 of Luke. Again, we already read this. Some have speculated, therefore, that after the death of his elderly parents, John went to live with the Essenes and may even have been adopted by them or the community behind the Dead Sea Scrolls, if they're distinct from the Essenes. This theory is based on a few interesting points. According to Josephus, Essenes were known to take other men's children, while yet pliable and docile, and mold them according to their own ways. In fact, Josephus even tells about how he himself had spent time as a youth among the Essenes. Lending support to this theory is also the earliest traditions about the location where John baptized, the location on the Jordan River, within walking distance of the Qumran caves. So here we have, this is the Dead Sea, the top of the Dead Sea here, northern part of the Dead Sea. Here's the area where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and John was baptizing up here, not far from that region. If you look on a larger map, you see that, relatively speaking, we're talking about the same area of Palestine. Well, as you can see, it's not very far. It's only about two feet. (laughs) So... That's right. Further lending to the theory of some relationship of John the Baptist and the community behind the Dead Sea Scrolls is that there are certainly some interesting similarities between the sectarian documents of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the picture of John the Baptist in the Gospels and as in Josephus. In all four Gospels, remember, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, was quoted the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, in reference to John the Baptist. Obviously, this text should be associated with John the Baptist preaching, his ministry, and the early Christians saw a relationship of this text to John the Baptist and therefore have included it in all four Gospels. One of the most important of the sectarian documents the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Manual of Discipline or the Rule of the Community also cites this verse for their reason of being in the wilderness, to go into the desert to prepare there his way. As it is written, make ready in the desert the way of Yahweh, or dot, 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 as it appears in the text, to avoid the divine name. Make straight in the wilderness a path for our God. Now this text appears in both the picture of John the Baptist in the Gospels, as well as the sectarian documented sea scrolls, could be a sheer coincidence. But it surely is interesting. Both John the Baptist and the community were out in the wilderness. And this text is a very important text in the Old Testament and does talk about the wilderness. So it makes sense that this text would have been used in many ways. Again, therefore, it could have been a coincidence. But this similarity has lended to the theories of John the Baptist's association with the community. Another interesting parallel is in John's preaching of repentance and baptism. According to the New Testament, John the Baptist not only baptized, but preached the need of repentance as well. Josephus described him similarly, you remember. He was a good man and urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue, both as to justice toward one another and reverence toward God, and having done so, joined together in washing. For immersion in water, it was clear to him, could not be used for the forgiveness of sins, but as the sanctification of the body and only if the soul was already thoroughly purified by right actions. The New Testament also describes John as foretelling the coming of one after him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. An interesting parallel exists between this picture of John the Baptist and one of the sectarian documents of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, the manual of discipline. He who fails to repent will not become clean by the acts of atonement nor shall he be purified by the cleansing water nor shall he be made holy by the seas of rivers, seas or rivers nor shall he be purified by all the water of ablutions defiled defiled shall he be all the days he spurns the decrees of god without allowing himself to be taught by the community of his counsel, for By the spirit of true counsel concerning the paths of man, all his sins are atoned, so that he can look at the light of life. And by the spirit of holiness, which links him with his truth, he is cleansed of all his sins. And by the spirit of uprightness and of humility, his sin is atoned. And by the compliance of his soul with all the laws of God, his flesh is cleansed by being sprinkled with cleansing waters and being made holy with the waters of repentance." God will purge by his truth all the deeds of human beings, refining as by fire for himself, some of mankind, remove every spirit from their flesh to cleanse them with a holy spirit and sprinkle them with a spirit of truth like purifying water. One shall not enter the water to partake of the pure meal of holy men, for they shall not be cleansed unless they repent of their wickedness, for unclean are all who transgress. His word. You can hear a number of similarities there, not only obviously to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36, with the sprinkling of water and making clean, but you can also hear references or similar language in the Gospel of John in particular, and the stories about John the Baptist in the four Gospels. Taking all this information together regarding the early life of John the Baptist, the words of Josephus concerning the Essenes, and the parallels between the Ministry of John and the sectarian documents, it is easy to see why many have developed theories of John's relationship to the community behind the Dead Sea Scrolls. None of the reasons alone provides convincing evidence for the theories, but the collection of them all makes it seem, at least possible, that a relationship may have existed. The debate will likely continue, therefore, until further information is discovered that assists in further support of these theories or The elimination of them. Is there any direct relationship between the life and words of Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls? And if so, how does this affect New Testament studies? If one can make a plausible case for John the Baptist having some relation to the community behind the Dead Sea Scrolls, what about Jesus? Again, as with John, there is no clear reference to Jesus anywhere in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One could speculate, however, that Jesus may have had contact with the community, Sometime before his ministry. Again, not a lot is known about the early life of Christ. After 12 years old in Luke's Gospel, the next time we see him is at the baptism of John. Also after that baptism, we hear about him going out into the wilderness for a period. Based upon that lack of information about Jesus' early life, also about his time in the wilderness, and contact with John the Baptist, has suggested to some, that there may be a possibility that Jesus had some contact with the community. But this would only be speculation, of course. There are some interesting parallels, however, between Jesus' words in the Gospels and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Where was it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies? Well, this is given as part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is quoting from, for the most part, the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses. Love your neighbor is found in the heart of the Pentateuch, the book of Leviticus, And in its heart, the Holiness Code. Flip over to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason with your neighbor, lest you bear sin because of him. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But if you keep looking you'll find that there's no reference to and you shall hate your enemies jesus said you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies now it is possible based on semitic style What Jesus is referring to, obviously, is the text of Leviticus chapter 19 and the natural assumption based on, again, Semitic style in the Old Testament that if you're going to love your neighbor, you will then hate your enemies. But this question has often been pondered in commentaries. Where is Jesus getting this information? What is he referring to? He's quoting it to a crowd who obviously knows the law. Well, Up until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were no references known in the Old Testament or in Josephus or any of our other resources for studying the New Testament about hating your enemies. But in the Manual of Discipline, it says, you shall love the sons of light and hate all the sons of darkness. The sons of darkness in the Manual of Discipline are the enemies of the community and the enemies of God. Is there a relationship between this language and what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? Possibly. Is it direct? Probably not. But what this text shows you is that when Jesus said this, there is a background for this language in first century Judaism. And the language would have been understood by his audience. Are there any other passages in the Dead Sea Scrolls that assist in the study of the New Testament? Yes, a lot. We don't have time to go through them all, but I'll summarize some of the more important ones for you. If you read the epistle to Romans, you'll hear a number of times the language of Paul, the righteousness of God. The way Paul uses that language in Romans, it sounds as if this is a stock phrase from Judaism in the period. But if you read the writings of Josephus and Philo and in the Old Testament, you'll never find that exact language. You'll hear about righteousness. You'll hear about God. But the phrase, the righteousness of God, does not appear. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find that exact language, though, in Hebrew. The works of the law that you hear so often in Romans and Galatians and in other places of Paul. Again, he uses this language as if this is stock phraseology from the period. Again, you cannot find that phrase clearly in the Old Testament, nor in the writings of Josephus or Philo, but it appears a number of times in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Christological titles as well regarding Jesus as Lord and Son of God. Oftentimes commentators, especially in the previous century, assume that these were apologetics against Hellenistic titles or Greco-Roman titles of the emperor as son of God and Lord. It's possible that there's an apologetic there, but in the Dead Sea Scrolls we find the Messiah being spoken of and others as the son or sons of God and the Messiah as Lord. Again, the Dead Sea Scrolls help place those Christological titles in their Semitic background there in the first century. Do the Dead Sea Scrolls manifest messianic hopes in the first century? There are a number of texts. Let's just look at the second paragraph there. The heavens and the earth will listen to his Messiah, and all that is in them will not swerve from the commandments of the holy ones. Be strengthened in his service, all you who seek the Lord. Shall you not find the Lord in this, all you who hope in your hearts? For the Lord will visit pious ones, and righteous ones he will renew with his power. He will honor the pious ones on a throne of eternal kingship, freeing prisoners, giving sight to the blind, straightening up those bent over. Forever shall I cling to those who hope, and in his steadfast love he will recompense. And the fruit of a good deed will be delayed for no one. Wondrous things such as have never been before, the Lord will do, as he said." For he will heal the wounded, revive the dead, and proclaim good news to the afflicted. The poor he will satisfy, the uprooted he will guide, and on the hungry he will bestow riches. Anyone who has read the New Testament can't fail to hear the parallels, and particularly in the Gospel of Luke, in the description of Jesus and this language. Why do you hear similarities? Because the Dead Sea Scrolls are manifesting the hope that we have evidence of in the New Testament of the messianic visions or hopes of the people of Israel in the first century. It's just about time to take a short break and then reconvene for questions. But before we break, I would like to close with a summary of our topic tonight, that being the Dead Sea Scrolls, their significance for the New Testament studies, and thus the Christian faith. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were first discovered, a number of books and articles appeared for the popular audience with one common theme. The Dead Sea Scrolls have shook the very foundations of Christian dogma and faith. A fine example of this is in the book by Edmund Wilson, published in 1955, where he said, the monastery of Qumran is perhaps more than Bethlehem or Nazareth, the cradle of Christianity. These new documents have thus loomed as a menace to a variety of rooted assumptions from matters of tradition and dogma to hypotheses that are exploits of scholarship. It would seem an immense advantage for cultural and social intercourse, that is, for civilization, that the rise of Christianity should at last be generally understood as simply an episode of human history rather than propagated as dogma and divine revelation the study of the dead sea scrolls with the direction it now is now taking cannot fail one would think to conduce to this 1955 and this is just one example of a number of books and articles that were being written at the time not based on the scrolls themselves but of misinformation about what the scrolls might contain stark contrast to the wild and imaginative words of Wilson is the recent assessment of the issue by Joseph A. Fitzmaier, a scholar who has had first-hand experience with the Dead Sea Scrolls from the beginning and is widely considered today to be one of the world's greatest living experts in the field. He said, the Christian message itself has found no parallel in those scrolls. There is nothing about Jesus of Nazareth, or his story, or the interpretation of him. Nothing about the Christian church, nothing about the vicarious and salvific character of what Jesus accomplished for humanity in his passion, death, and resurrection. I am not saying this in a defensive or apologetic way. It is simply a statement of fact. For all the light that the scrolls have shed on the Palestinian Jewish matrix of Christianity and on ways that early Christians borrowed ideas and phrases in order to formulate their charismatic proclamation of the Christian message, there is nothing in the scrolls that undermines or is detrimental to that message. Despite allegations made at times, nothing in the scrolls militates against the uniqueness of Jesus
1: First question? Could you elaborate a little bit on the messianic titles that you mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls and how maybe they they illuminate our understanding of the Christology of the New Testament?
2: Sure. They don't dramatically change what has traditionally been understood about those titles. It's just in the last century, there were a number of theories developed that... Almost everything in the New Testament could be explained as an apologetic, or in related to the Hellenistic world around the New Testament uh, composition. The Dead Sea Scrolls show us that the titles, "O Kyrios, O Christos," uh, these titles are though they are in Greek and appear in the Hellenistic world, they appear as titles also of Caesar. They appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls, however, in references to the Messiah and also the covenantal people that the community understood themselves to be. So, what we find is that those titles are not strictly apologetics against Hellenism or the Greco-Roman world, but are related more and first to the Semitic usage of those titles, and therefore should be re first to the Old Testament. This is something that New Testament scholarship has definitely come to understand in more detail in the last few decades, and especially due to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls.
0: I had heard that um, one of the deuterocanonicals that Luther had taken out because he thought they weren't ancient enough was found in Qumran, kind of giving the error to that, showing it was indeed ancient, and I can't remember which one it was. Could you elaborate on that?
2: Sure. The canonical debates are actually a, is actually a distinct topic. But the books like Tobit and Sirach and these other books are found or referred to in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in fact, one of the books that I'll uh, give you the bibliography for by Joseph Fitzmaier, he has a few chapters simply on the relevance of the Dead Sea Scrolls for the book of Tobit.
0: So, um, Pharisees and Sadducees, these people are all mentioned, no mention of the Essenes in the New Testament. Is that just because they were in the wilderness?
2: That's a good question. It goes back to the, uh, a number of questions about the relationship of the Essenes to the Dead Sea Scrolls and to the early Christian community. Many have theorized that the reason why the Essenes seem to have disappeared very quickly is that they all converted, all became Christians. They all accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and therefore the movement vaporized. Uh, That's possible. Another possibility is that many of the Essenes lived outside of the main cities and villages in their own little communities, or if they lived in a city, they tended to live in their own neighborhoods. And it's possible that during the uh, war and the destruction of Jerusalem that many of them were involved in the fight against the Romans, and so many of them also might have been killed. But the um, question of why the Essenes are not included, or is clearly referred to in the New Testament, whereas the Pharisees and Sadducees seem to be, is an interesting one. It may be simply that the Essenes tended to stay away from large crowds and didn't like the Pharisees and didn't like the Sadducees, whereas the Sadducees and Pharisees uh, would have been ones that we can, as far as we know of them, would have engaged Jesus in debates on theological topics.
1: Uh, can you tell us briefly about the f- story of the finding of the scrolls and how their significance came to be appreciated?
2: Uh, <laughs> very briefly, yes. The, um, the first scrolls, Cave 1, were discovered by a Bedouin shepherd in 1947. The uh, story gets very complicated because in 1948 there was the rebellion against the British Mandate by the Israeli Zionists and the establishment then of the country of the Israelis. Uh, From 1949 uh, and following, a number of other discoveries of the other caves continued um, Some of them were by Bedouin shepherds. Once the Bedouins realized that they could get cash for the scrolls, they began searching for more caves and more scrolls and did find more. Archaeologists also were involved, some from the Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem. Father Fitzmaier uh, was working there at the time. The uh, Jordanian Department of Antiquities was also involved in discovery of some of the caves, also along with the Ecole Biblique as well as the Palestinian uh, not museum that is now called the Rockefeller Museum. So it's a complicated story, and actually there's some great resources for you, and this is the last thing I wanted to talk about. So Joseph A. Fitzmaier, Responses to 101 Questions on the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is the first book I would recommend to you if you're going to begin studying the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a popular work. He doesn't give you Hebrew and Greek script in here. But it's a great beginner's manual for studying the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you need a guide when you begin to study the Dead Sea Scrolls because the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls is as complicated as the study of the New Testament and there are many mines, in fact entire fields. There are many scholars out there who, if you want to call them that, uh, have created all sorts of really strange theories about the Dead Sea Scrolls. For example, uh, there's an Australian scholar, Barbara Thiering, who has suggested that the teacher of righteousness is John the Baptist, the wicked priest is Jesus, that Jesus was, after his, crucif- that he was crucified at Qumran, that he was, re- uh, after he was resuscitated at Qumran, he then married a female bishop, and lived happily ever after, similar to Dan Brown's theory. So Barbara Thiering, you, as you, if you went onto Amazon, punched and Dead Sea Scrolls, you might come up with all sorts of books by her. And so you wouldn't really know what you're reading. I, you wrote, I would recommend strongly starting with something like Fitzmaier's book, 101 Questions, because he'll give you another a number of those names, some of the stranger's, scholars, if you want to call them, some of the stranger theories, and some works to avoid that are not necessarily what you call scholarly. But, unfortunately, very influential in the popular world. A companion to that is, as you would probably most of you need, an English translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Martinez's work is uh, well used. It's recommended by Fitzmaier. This was the, one of the texts for our course, actually, at Catholic University. There uh, is probably a a newer translation of it out there. Again, you can see the fragmentary text on the cover. I'll have these up here for you. If you want to continue your study after 101 Questions, Joseph Fitzmaier has come out with a new work in 2000, The Dead Sea Scrolls and Christian Origins. And it's his introductory chapters here that I used as the main resource for the lecture tonight. This is also the place where I found the quote for you. Uh, at the end of the lecture. Any other questions? Thank
1: you very much.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. Or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.